Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 248, Life in Turkic Anatolia. Today we're going to talk about the parts of Anatolia which are controlled by Turkic peoples, essentially trying to fill in some details about what life was like there between 1080 and 1180 AD, so between the Battle of Manzikert and the death of Manuel Komnenos. We don't have a huge amount of written sources to draw on, but hopefully there's enough information available to give you a better picture of what's been going on. When we speak about Turkic peoples, we are talking about two different groups, the settled and the nomads. One of the phenomena that's been the hardest to understand in the course of the podcast is the exact relationship between the Turkic nomads and the Seljuk authorities. As you may remember, there was a breakdown in the defences of northern Iran around the same time that Basil II died, so the 1020s AD. Steppe tribes started to migrate south into the former caliphate. These nomadic groups continued to live their traditional lifestyle, pushing herds and flocks with them, while also trading with and attacking the settled peoples they encountered. What followed was a series of wars in Iran and Iraq, where the local political leaders tried to use the nomads to defeat their rivals. After decades of conflict, the Seljuks emerged as the new masters of the Middle East. Leading a combined force of regular troops and steppe riders, the new sultans were briefly able to put the caliphate back together again. But what's not clear is how the sultans controlled the nomads. There was an element of traditional tribal loyalty going on, but there was also a pay structure where the nomads would serve in the armies of the state. And in the meantime, many tribes continued to live out their lives outside of formal political authority. It was these groups who first began ransacking Armenia, looking for easy loot and plunder. A deadly combination of ambitious generals and independent tribal leaders then led daring raids through Armenia and into Anatolia in search of undefended cities. The Romans had plenty of these. 
they hadn't anticipated the arrival of nomads so far from the grasslands north of the Black Sea. After the Battle of Manzikert, this confused situation replicated itself in Byzantine territory. The Seljuks who took control of Iconium were rebel generals, losers in a civil war who were looking for a new base to operate from outside of Baghdad's control. Whereas the nomads who moved onto the plateau were independent tribes who'd reached the end of the grasslands that existed in this new world that they discovered. We have almost no Turkic documentation from this period. Written records only start to appear in the 1200s. So we remain in the dark about the exact dynamics of Turkic rule in Anatolia. What we do know is that every time the Sultan of Iconium made a truce with the Romans, he was unable to stop the nomads from raiding imperial territory. While on the flip side, Every time a major Christian army crossed the plateau, the nomads were more than willing to accept the sultan's leadership. Scholars again suggest that a semi-tribal conception of authority must have remained in place, where the sultan of Iconium had personal ties to the leaders of each tribe, and could call them in to serve in his army when he needed them. But the demands which the sultan could make had some kind of limit, Apparently he couldn't order these tribes to stay out of Roman territory, or if he did, they ignored him, confident that no real punishment would befall them. So that is our starting point when trying to piece together life in Anatolia during this century. The Turkic peoples who moved in came in two different groups, the settled and the nomads. They lived separate but intertwined lives never fully integrated into one political unit, but always aware of the confessional identity and ethnicity that they shared. And those shared values are what kept them working together and eventually led Anatolia to become Turkey. Or should I say, Turkiye. Let's begin with the steppe people. We talked about the nomad lifestyle back in episode 163. Tribes lived off their herds, and their lives were dominated by the search for fresh pasture. Tribes were rarely self-sufficient and had to forge relationships with settled societies in order to acquire things that they couldn't create themselves. Weapons, pots and pans, clothes, finished leather goods, and so on. When the Turkic tribes arrived in Anatolia, they found the plateau very much to their liking. The Romans used the plateau to breed animals, but obviously had no tribes of their own to defend the area. It can't have taken long for the Turks to drive the Byzantine ranches out and take over the entire region. The central area of the plateau was the place where life changed most dramatically in Anatolia. A few Roman towns and villages survived by coming to an agreement with the nomads, but otherwise the Turks dominated Their herds of sheep, horses, and the camels they'd brought with them now grazed its length. We're told that cities like Ankara and Aksarai, Roman colonia, were largely abandoned by the local Christians, becoming essentially Muslim cities within a generation. And while the names of Byzantine cities usually find themselves transliterated into Turkish, 
the Greek names for areas of the central plateau have all but disappeared, being replaced by Turkish words whose roots sometimes lead back to tribal leaders from this period. The nomads generally had a village they called home, where they lived during the winter, but every summer the bulk of the tribe would take the animals off to distant lands in search of uneaten grass. This meant moving into the highlands or pushing into territory occupied by other tribes or settled people. This often led to violence, which drew scorn from all settled peoples. The Byzantines called them dogheads, cannibals, and wolves, amongst many other less polite nicknames. While even city-dwelling Muslims looked down on their untethered brethren for being lawless and uncultured. In the first written history of the Seljuk state, this distinction was made plain. The author referred to the nomads as Turks, while the rest of the population were simply Muslims. Over the course of the Komnenian century, the western part of the plateau followed a similar trajectory. Initially, this area was dotted with Roman towns, but after the First Crusade, when Alexius was able to restore imperial control to the west coast, things began to change. The west of the plateau was now the major battleground between Byzantine troops and Turkic nomads. Many local Christians abandoned their homes and migrated to the coast in order to get away from the conflict. The emperors encouraged this process during their campaigns, on several occasions offering to guide groups of migrants back to imperial territory where they would be settled on abandoned land. Ironically, this process made the western edge of the plateau much harder for the Byzantines to retake. The landscape was stripped clean of the kind of settlements which could aid an imperial army, creating instead a barren land where the nomads could roam free. It was this deserted terrain which greeted the armies of the Second Crusade. As they left Byzantine territory, they could find no help or shelter as they limped to the coast. On the northern, southern and eastern edges of the plateau, life had changed less dramatically. In the north, the Danish men's took control. In the south, the rebel Seljuk generals. These groups wanted to protect what they'd found, both the cities they governed from and the village communities whose taxes paid for their courts, administration and armies. These settled Turkic states had to find a modus vivendi with the Christian populations they now ruled. The conquerors were outnumbered significantly by the native Romans and Armenians, which led to a generally tolerant state where the usual Islamic strictures against non-Muslims were ignored. A visiting cleric in the 13th century wrote to the local emir, outraged that the city's Christians were dressing as they pleased, worshipping noisily in their own churches, and generally acting as if they ran the place. Of course, the Romans would have suffered initially. This was a violent conquest with all the attendant brutality, enslavement and dislocation that you'd expect. But once the initial invasions were over and the new states were established, it seems clear that peaceful relations became the norm. In fact, what remained of the Roman nobility seems to have married into the Seljuk hierarchy 
in order to continue enjoying access to power. Kilijarslan II was said to have married a Christian woman, as did several other sultans. They employed a specifically Christian department of state in order to correspond with the Byzantines and the Latins, and when Manuel was trapped in the Deaf Isle at Miriokephalon, who did the sultan send to negotiate peace? A member of the Gavras family. The Gavras family were the rulers of Trebizond for many decades. Several members of that family had apostatized to Islam in order to gain a high rank at the sultan's court. It may well have been this Gavras who advised Manuel about changing the rules around converting from Islam to Christianity. In places like Egypt and Iraq, Christians often served in very high administrative positions, their non-Muslim status being seen as an advantage because it made them less of a political threat. That didn't happen in the Seljuk state, presumably because of the obvious conflict with the Romans, but also because the Christians in Egypt and Iraq spoke and wrote in Arabic. By the time an Anatolian Roman had learnt this new language to a high enough level to be competent, they might as well convert to Islam so that they could actually develop a proper political career. The governments which the settled Turks established were modelled on the Iranian states they had been working in before they arrived. And even into the 13th century, official letters and documents were written in Persian or Arabic, with Turkish only emerging as the dominant written language over time. The sultans were essentially kings, dynastic leaders of an independent state. They were obviously Muslims with responsibilities for the maintenance of religious order, but they didn't claim the same authority in spiritual matters as a caliph. The Seljuks did not practice strict primogeniture. Any male relative of the sultan could be a viable successor, which led to fairly constant civil war. For example, our sitting ruler is Kilijarslan II, the man who defeated Manuel at the Battle of Miriokephalon, and when he dies he will leave a piece of territory to each of his eleven sons and three daughters, leading inevitably to protracted internal conflict. Initially, the Seljuks of Iconium didn't imagine that they were going to stay in the land of the Romans. Their politics were eastern-facing. They looked to Baghdad for opportunities to return to the mainstream of Muslim life. But the Crusader capture of Antioch and the rise of Nur al-Din had shut down their eastern front. This turned the Seljuks inward, and as you know, by Manuel's death they had eliminated the Danishmen's and increasingly saw Anatolia as their homeland. The Seljuks had travelled to Anatolia with regular troops as well as entourages of civilians, and over time they encouraged the migration of other Muslim tradesmen, artisans and religious leaders to come and serve them as well. But inevitably, they depended on the local Christian population for their society to function. This meant that some pressure towards conversion was necessary. In order to serve in the army, or high in the administration, or in a religious school, conversion to Islam was demanded. While many women were married to Turkic men, and conversion was part of the deal, 
the children these unions produced were then brought up culturally Turkish and Muslim. We have no data on conversions or the proportion of population that were Christian or Muslim. Legendary accounts of the Danishman state refer to mass conversions, both forced and voluntary, but it's hard to know how much truth there is in those stories. As many of you know, there were still Christian communities dotting the length and breadth of Anatolia as late as 1900, so there was certainly no attempt to force conversion upon the vast majority of Anatolian Christians. The Seljuks and the Danishmans wanted nice, quiet communities who would pay their taxes and keep the business of life moving. Despite the necessity of conversion for those taking part in political life, it was considered no shame to have a Roman background. The Gavras who visited Manuel did not change his family name, and some Byzantines serving in the new Turkic courts boasted about their lineage. An Islamic coffin found near Iconium has an inscription for a man who died in 1297. In Greek, it proudly relates that here lies the descendant of men born in the purple, and goes on to claim that his ancestors included a series of Byzantine generals, the last of whom was related to the Emperor John Komnenos. Understandably, this mixed Christian-Muslim world led to some confused ideas spreading amongst the population. We heard a little bit about this when Manawil tried to relax the rules around conversion. Byzantine priests were being approached by people who'd spent time in Muslim company and had adopted some of their ideas. These priests, living safely in Roman territory, were inclined to take a hard line and demand that new converts to Christianity abandon all their former beliefs, whereas Manuel argued for leniency in order to encourage more people to switch sides. During this discussion, we learn that Muslims in some areas were taking their children to be baptised by Orthodox priests, not to make them Christians, but to prevent them from being possessed by demons, or to cure them from smelling like dogs. Here we see the Turks, strangers in this new land, sensing something powerful in the religious practices of the native community, and wanting a piece of it. This cultural mixing is apparently typical of societies going through religious transformation. Back in the episodes I did covering the career of John Chrysostom, who lived in the late 300s, we heard something similar. Back then, Christians in Antioch were still going to the Jewish temple in order to swear oaths. The ancient temple clearly exerted a sense of power and authority which the newer churches lacked, something which irritated Chrysostom and his colleagues who were trying to draw a sharp divide between Christian and Jewish practice. Another fascinating piece of this transliterated religious belief comes from the Central Plateau. Apparently, a tribe of nomads discovered an ancient Hittite monument next to a spring 50 miles west of Iconium. Understandably, the Turks didn't have any knowledge of pre-Roman civilizations, so they assumed that the site was Byzantine. 
the tradition developed that this spring was connected to Plato. Yes, the Athenian philosopher Plato. He'd gained a reputation as a man of wisdom after his works were translated into Arabic back in the Caliphate's day. By various tortured pieces of logic, Plato came to be remembered as having lived near Iconium. This type of conflation is what would eventually turn Anatolia into Turkey. Christian pilgrimage sites across the peninsula would slowly become associated with Muslim holy men until those traditions replaced the original Christian stories, some of which, I should add, had replaced earlier pagan ones. Back in 1180, though, enough connections remained between the Orthodox hierarchies and the communities in Anatolia that churches in major Seljuk towns retained their traditional Roman character. The Byzantine church had obviously gone through a very difficult time. Before Manzikert, bishops played a major role in town and country life. They were judges and administrators, as well as patrons who funded repairs, provided education and fed the poor. Most bishops had fled to Constantinople when the Turks arrived, taking their wealth with them. Manuel demanded that his clergy be allowed to return during his peace negotiations with Kilijarslan, and though this point was agreed, it was not so easy to achieve. In the lands closer to Roman territory, some clergy did return to their flocks, but in major Seljuk towns, no wealthy Roman bishop was going to march back in carrying bags of coins. We don't have a great deal of information on what happened to those communities left behind in Muslim territory, but doubtless many churches decayed and disappeared. Towns increasingly became more dominated by Muslim activity, and it was more in the countryside or on the coasts that Christianity was able to survive. Until new sources are unearthed, that's all I can tell you about Turkic Anatolia in this period. I know many of you were interested to know more about the Romans left behind, but we don't have a lot to go on. What I can say is that politically, they were increasingly leaning towards the status quo. We saw this during the Miriokephalon campaign, where cities in the former Danishmend territories in the north, would not throw open their gates when an imperial army appeared. This is completely understandable given the likelihood that the imperial occupation would be temporary and that the Turks would return angry at those who'd betrayed them. But it also points to the realities of time. A century had passed since man's occurred. Most Romans in Turkic territory had no memory of imperial rule. Their communities had struck new deals with the Seljuks or with the nomads that they were you know, busy maintaining. They weren't going to risk their lives for the abstract ideal of being part of a Christian empire. It's also worth remembering that for many people in eastern Anatolia, it would have seemed like a multipolar world they lived in rather than a Turkish one. The Armenians and the Georgians dominated the mountains to the east. The Armenians and the Latins, the mountains to the south. 
and the Byzantines were obviously on the coast and to the west. It was a Turkish state they lived in day by day, but the wider world was full of Christians. Christian merchants and messengers would have passed through, and information about other Christian states would have been readily available. So any apocalyptic instincts were tempered by experience. Let's tackle a couple of listener questions before we finish. Listener MK asked about the words I use to describe the peoples in Anatolia. You may have heard me use different terms. Uh, the people of Iconium, the ruler of Iconium, the sultan of Iconium, the Seljuks, the nomads, the steppe warriors, and so on. Uh, I'm always reaching for synonyms, hence emperor and Vasilevs, Byzantine and Roman, otherwise I just say the same words over and over. Hopefully this episode has helped clarify the situation. There were at this stage two distinct Turkic peoples operating in Anatolia, the settled and the nomads. When I've mentioned nomads attacking the Romans, I do mean the nomads. The sultan had an army of his own made up of regular infantry and cavalry, but when he was fighting a big Byzantine army, his best troops remained the men of the steppe. Up to this point, I've usually referred to the Sultan of Iconium when describing the Seljuk ruler. Now that the Danishmens have been eliminated and all of Turkic Anatolia is under their sway, I may start to use the title which many of you are more familiar with, the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. Um, the Turks called Anatolia Rum, as in the land of the Romans. Listener M.A. asked about when I will switch from saying Turkic to Turkish, uh, noting I made a similar switch from Bulgar to Bulgarian at one point, which is a great question. The Bulgar switch seemed straightforward because once they had a Christian king, he seemed to be representing a nation rather than a confederation. Um, at this stage, the Seljuks were still a faction within the wider Islamic world, and their sultanate was made up of many different peoples. Uh, listener MA suggests the switch may come with the beginnings of the Ottomans. That might make sense, we'll see. Eventually, I will also switch from calling their capital Iconium and start using its transliterated name, Konya. Hopefully, the terminology I use is respectful. As we've discussed in this episode, the Turkic people in Anatolia were not homogenous. It wasn't clear at this stage that Anatolia would one day be Turkey to them, a national homeland, though doubtless for many who lived there their whole lives, um, it felt like it was. But, you know, interestingly, the Seljuks thought of the land they inhabited as Rum, uh, whereas the Latins, who will cross Anatolia during the Third Crusade, uh, called the plateau Turkia, the land of the Turks, because that's all they saw there. Next time, we'll talk about the Roman-controlled parts of Anatolia and examine life there during the Comnenian century. <laughs>